The Science Show on RN. Last month you may recall that the Prime Minister and the Science Minister Ed Husick mapped out a way that science could better serve the community and industry in Australia. Well, the Academy of Science, led by Professor Jagadish, has already sketched a similar path based on better funding and catching up with the present system, they say, is 30 years out of date. Now, anything involving the word future can send Australian politicians into hiding. But just consider how long it takes for revolutionary innovations, such as LED lighting, for which Dr Jagadish is famous, to become a new way. Now, Professor Jagadish, if we look at the ceiling, we can see several lights in this studio in the Academy of Science building. What sort of lights are they? These are LED lights. LEDs are light-emitting devices. And who helped invent them? LEDs have been developed over many years, and different colors of LEDs have been developed, particularly the red and green ones, long time back. And then most recently, three Japanese scientists have developed the blue LEDs, which was a missing link. Having three primary colors of red, green, blue allows us to be able to produce white LEDs. And currently, LED lights, which we are benefiting from, are the combination of this development of this particular technology. Now, you're being modest. What was your role in this breakthrough? So we have been involved in terms of developing some of the processes in developing this blue LED technology, particularly along with my students and colleagues. And some of those students are manufacturing millions of LEDs per month in China and other parts of the world. And of course, environmentally, they're far better than the old sort. Absolutely. They consume less energy and they're more efficient than the old LED lamps by reducing energy consumption we're also reducing the greenhouse gas emissions and also that they last long periods of time because these are the solid-state devices than the filaments which used to burn every 18 months or two years or so. I ask you these questions about the work that you've done, which is in practically all our houses now. It's so familiar. But it took, what, something near 30 years to develop to its wonderful stage at the moment. And the problem with funding science is you've got this long lead time. And of course, it's worth it because when you break through like this, as you've described with the lights, it's really worthwhile. But how do you convince a minister to fund science properly when it's got a lag time way beyond the next election? So the important thing is that uh, science is a long-term capital which we invest in. And then it is seen as of building the foundations for the future of the economy and the future of the country. And that's why we emphasize the importance of investing in fundamental research and applied research and then further commercialization of these applied research into technologies. And so full spectrum need to be funded. And if we do not do that one and only focus on one particular aspect or the other, that means we're missing out on opportunities to create the pipeline of innovations which will lead to future technologies which are going to make a huge impact on the lives of the people. Well, the Minister of Science, Ed Husick, says he understands this and we'll find out when the budget happens whether it's been realised, practically speaking, because we are something like 1.7% of GDP and to get in the OECD league, it needs, according to your statement as a president of the academy, to be 3%. Now, that's quite a big increase, isn't it? Yes, Robin. And in fact, a decade back, we used to have up to 2.25% of the GDP investment in R&D. During the decade or so, we have really come down from 2.25% to 1.7%. 
And that's not a good sign if you want to be a smart country, we want to move towards a knowledge-based economy. So we need to change that slope of investment and we really move towards the 3% target because our comparator countries, when you talk about like Germany or US or Israel is invest about 5% and South Korea invests more than 4% or so. And if you want to be competitive globally, we need to invest in R&D. And again, as I mentioned, the investment in R&D is the long-term investment into the future jobs and in the future skills and future industries. But it can't be start-stop because the thing is so many scientists in Australia have been on a project and then it's everything stop and they've still got to earn a living somehow. <laughs> but how much has that been a hazard for work in R&D in this country? Start-stop programs really waste a lot of energy put in by in developing the technologies and also creates a lot of frustration within the research sector. Particularly if you want to create a sense of hope for the next generation and then nurture the early and mid-career researchers and young scientists and PhD students, we need to really have a long-term plan of investment and thereby there's certainty of funding so that people can plan their research and thereby will be able to achieve the goals which we set for ourselves. As you pointed out, science is a long-term game. And then also when you're developing the technologies, they also take long time that if you do not have this continuous funding, what will happen is that those technologies will not ever be able to see the light of the day. So that's why consistent long-term funding is absolutely critical. And at least in the near term, we should really move towards the 3% investment of the GDP in R&D. Is that why you say we are something like 30 years out of date? So one of the challenges is that we've got a Many programs, 202 programs, like a Band-Aid programs, have been developed in 13 portfolios in the government. And also that's where we need to have a comprehensive review of the research sector. And then thereby we can identify where are the gaps and where are the duplications. And to ensure that whatever the investments and particularly the new investments we are planning to make, they're really made use of appropriately for the good of the country. And so the third element that you describe in terms of looking at the different sections of the economy and defining them in a way that people appreciate and do something about in terms of their own application, what, what does that amount to? No, first and foremost, you know, if we really invest in R&D, people can really plan and then make sure that they know that the investments are going to be there, thereby they can really plan for long-term research which is going to have a major impact. So some of this research is high-risk, high-reward research, and that's where if people want to plan, and the certainty is absolutely critical if you want to do that one. But again, the STEM workforce is absolutely critical for the country. And as you know that in the schools, we need to invest in, make sure that we have the qualified teachers at both at the primary and the high school level so that they can inspire the children and then also they choose STEM as a career pathway. Again, also that we need to attract smart people from various parts of the world and create opportunities for them, retain them, and thereby they're able to contribute our economy and our, contribute our society, including developing technologies which are going to improve the quality of life of our people. You are challenging the government and, if like, the people of Australia, the leaders, for a generational change, aren't you? Absolutely. And again, you know, we are really at the cusp of this change. In fact, we have been reliant on the minerals and then agriculture products in the past. And then 
Our economy is the 91st in the listing of the, if you want to call it as the least complexity. Complexity has been identified as a how vulnerable the economy is. And then the higher the number, that means, you know, we are more and more vulnerable. So that's why it is important for us to really invest in R&D, develop new technologies, and make use of even minerals for processing them here. Thereby, we're able to get more value from those areas and then also develop the next generation technologies, which can really create jobs for the younger generation as well. Yeah, it's quite interesting, isn't it? It's, it's a bit like biodiversity. If you've got biodiversity and a whole range of different organisms, then you get resilience in the ecology of a forest, of a pasture or something like that. But a couple of days ago, the good news is that one of your fellows, Martin Green, got yet another prize. He got the equivalent of Nobel Prize for Engineering, the Queen Elizabeth Award. It's been two weeks since he last won a prize, which is the Finnish prize, for developing the world record for 30 years in solar technology that goes on the roof of your house which, of course, is material that's manufactured in China and not here. So it really is a paradox, isn't it? We've got the talent, we've got the interest, but all we need is the hope for the future. Absolutely. And uh, Martin has done a phenomenal job and uh, with his students developed a range of processes to make sure that the solar cell technology is at the highest efficiency level possible using silicon that's why we're enjoying the benefits of those solar cells on our rooftops, for example. So how do we ensure that the next generation of young scientists like Martin Green are able to develop the next generation technologies? So that's why we need to really start investing in schools, primary schools and high schools and the university sector as, again, a pipeline issue as well. And I know when the young people are inspired because we talked about planting trees a few weeks ago, they're unstoppable. They're terribly keen. But are you stoppable when it comes to going back to the bench? When you've finished being president of the academy, will you go back to the bench and carry on with another amazing piece of innovation? Of course, at the moment in my role as a president of the Australian Academy of Science, I'm focusing on champion for the cause of Australian science and Australian scientists, particularly young scientists, so that we've got a vibrant science sector which is going to pay great rewards for the country in the longer term. And my dream is to be able to get back. In fact, I keep telling my students and young colleagues that I wish to be able to get back to my bench and be able to do my research. And then I sometimes also tell them that this is the best time in your life of being a PhD student or a postdoctoral fellow. Have great fun. And I'm doing all the other things to give you the opportunity to have great fun. I hope I can get back to and then be able to do my research, hands-on research, which will be exciting time for me. Indeed, just like your Vice-Chancellor, Brian Schmidt, has promised to do, the Nobel Prize winner. Uh, absolutely. And it's a tough decision for Brian. And then being in the role for eight years or so, seven years now, in fact, is by the time he finishes his term. And then it will be eight years, despite having a second term of uh, up to 10 years or so. Sometimes one needs to make those decisions and identify what is important for me. And Brian, I think, has chosen that uh, he has done whatever he wanted to do at the ANU. And then, of course, he's always been very passionate about giving back to the ANU. ANU is the place where he did all his work to win the Nobel Prize. And I wish him good luck. And I'm sure that uh, he's going to have a great time in doing his astronomy when he steps down from the vice chancellor's role. Thank you very much indeed, Professor Jagadish. Uh, thank you very much, Robin. Professor Chunupati Jagadish is president of the Australian Academy of Science and at the ANU 
in the Department of Physics.